You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a special guest, Alan Schliemann. He's been on the show before. We we did an episode on hermeneutics. And Alan is a speaker for Stand to Reason. He is also an author. And he and I have been on this Stand to Reason conference for the last eight months, traveling around the country and talking to students. It's been amazing. And, and actually, Alan and I did uh, we in one of our breakout sessions he and i teamed up to do a q a for the whole lgbtq issue and um so that was really fun to work with him on that he's super wise and today we are going to talk about tactics in defending the faith and alan has uh really brilliant ideas about this and i'm excited to talk to him about it and so we are just waiting for him to join the call there he is. Welcome, Alan Schliemann. Thank you, Beckett Cook. Good to have you here. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we were just together, you know, like a couple of weeks ago or something, right? Because we were. Yeah, we were in uh, South Carolina and Georgia, I guess. Georgia, right Augusta, Augusta, Georgia. Yeah, that's right. And that was our last Stand to Reason conference together. Uh, and it was, I felt like that, that one was really good. The Q&A was really good, I felt like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Q&A you're referring to is when we kind of open up the floor to junior high to college age students and say, okay, ask us anything about sex, sexuality, LGBT, homosexuality, trans, yeah, yeah. Uh, non-binary, whatever it is. <laughs> That's right. Very, yeah. very fun time. I, I love it. But it was, it's, it's, it was, it's very fun to, uh, we need to take our, our thing on the road because it's so fun <laughs> to talk with you and to, to, uh, answer questions and kind of go back and forth with you. It's, I feel like we have a good rhythm, right? We do. I think so too. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I enjoy it. I enjoy doing it with you. It's great. But today we're going to talk about tactics in defending the faith. You talk about this a lot, uh, when you speak for Stand to Reason. Um, and Greg has written, he wrote a book called Tactics, correct? That's right. And Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. That's uh, the subtitle. Yes. Okay. So what is the game plan and what, how did you guys even come up with these tactics? Well, a lot of these tactics are based upon common um, principles of logic. So uh, I mean, perhaps in our conversation today, we might only cover one or maybe two tactics. But if you look at the book or you read all the tactics and study them, what you'll discover is that a lot of them are simply based on common logical principles, like the principle of, of self-refutation or reductio ad absurdum, which is taking an idea and showing how it reduces to an absurdity. So a lot of these tactics are simply based upon logic. But what we've done is we've tried to give them um, more friendly, accessible names to make them less intimidating, more approachable, easy to remember, and easy to use. So, um, again, technically speaking, there's nothing that Standard Reason or Greg Kokel did to invent them. He just kind of gave them better names, not better names, but just different names, uh -huh. and um, said, hey, let's 
let's learn these uh, these tactics of conversational persuasion and learn how we can use them in conversations about our faith and about our convictions. And so the the first tactic, and a lot of people, a lot of younger people, I mean, Gen Xers and boomers are going to get what this is, but it's called the Columbo tactic. First of all, tell us what Columbo is. I mean, I yes. know what it is, but what is yes. Columbo? Yes, yes. Well, for those of you who are younger, if you've ever seen the movie, uh, The Princess Bride, uh, the the grandfather who comes to talk and tell the story to Peter, uh, the Peter Savage, uh, Peter Falk. Oh no 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 the the young oh. boy Fred Savage Fred Savage. okay yeah Fred Savage is the young boy who's sick Peter Falk who's the uh, um, the, the grandfather that comes to read the story of the Princess Bride it's that actor um, who plays in a TV show that I think started in the seventies yeah went to the eighties seventies and the show is called Columbo and he's basically a lieutenant he's a, a detective of sorts he's a detective yeah and every episode kind of begins with with the viewer seeing a crime occur. And then Lieutenant Columbo comes on the scene. And what makes this show interesting is that Columbo comes across as completely inept and incapable of achieving his task and his job. Like sometimes he's wearing a trench coat that looks completely wrinkled, looks like he slept in it. <laughs> you know, he's got, you know, bed head, you know, his hair sticking off to the side of his yeah. head. He pulls out a piece of paper to take notes of the crime scene and he doesn't even have a pen or a pencil. And he's asking people, hey, does anybody have a pen or a pencil? You know, and people are looking at him going, how is this guy ever going to figure out? I mean, he he can't figure anything out. But the, the genius of Columbo <clears throat> is he he then asks very calmly and casually. He asks lots of questions. Hey, you know, tell me more about this. You know, what, what did you what were you doing here? And, you know, and they're questions that seem almost innocuous and uninteresting but he asks lots of them and more of them and more of them and more of them and, and pretty soon he's able to get enough information to piece together the puzzle and figure out who the criminal is yeah and it's so, kind of like he's kind of like the sloppy version of monk i don't know if you've ever seen the show monk. yes tony i have Shalhoub. yeah yes <laughs> tony shalhoub is like yeah. ocd and, and you know always worried about you know clean, cleanliness and uh germs but uh colombo was yeah he was kind of like a, a kind of a sloppy guy it's kind of like Oscar yes. and uh, what, on, what's the guy's name? Oscar and on the uh, what was the TV show in the 70s? Uh, the Odd Couple. It's like the Odd, oh, couple. The odd couple. Yes. Yeah. If you put them together. But so anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So, yeah. That, so that's his personality and style. And and so we've named this first the, the, we would say the, the queen mother, the foundational tactic we call the Colombo tactic, because at its core, it's about asking questions instead of statements to be able to make your point in a conversation or to move forward in conversation. So uh, just, let me Jesus, by the way, Jesus did this a lot in the gospels. He asked that's right. questions. That's right. In fact, yeah. um, uh, there's a guy who actually counted all the questions that Jesus asked in the gospels. And it was something like 284, you know? <laughs> and so it, you know, it's like, why is Jesus asking so many questions? Is it because he doesn't know anything? Well, the answer is no, of course not. The reason he's asking questions is because he knows the rhetorical power of engaging people's minds by asking them questions. Because oftentimes, if you can ask a question and get a person to think about an idea, oftentimes that idea, which seems to be their own thought, can convince them 
of the point that you're trying to make. Yeah. So um, I think let's, it's give, let's give an example of this. Okay. So yeah, like, um, so you, I used to work in East LA at a hospital and um, I remember uh, one of my friends was from India and one day he invited me out to lunch. So I'm like, sure, let's go to lunch. His name was uh, like Raj. Okay. And so he proceeds to tell me he's getting married at lunch. I'm like, Oh, congratulations. I'm so excited for you. And so I asked him a question. I said, Raj, are you going to have a Hindu themed wedding or an American wedding? He's like, oh, I'm going to have a Hindu themed wedding. I'm like, cool. So I said, um, so I asked him another question. I said, are you, uh, is Hinduism something that's important to you? He's like, yeah, it's important to me. I said, cool. So I asked him another question. I said, is, is Hinduism something that you believe is true? He thought about it for a moment. He's like, yeah, I think Hinduism is true. I said, cool. So then I asked another question. I said, do you believe all religions are true? Like not just Hinduism, but Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, Judaism. So he thought about it for a moment. He goes, he said, yeah, I think pretty much all religions are basically the same. Now, at this point in the conversation, I was recognizing that my friend Raj is what we would call, I mean, he didn't use this term, a religious pluralist. Where right. you think all religions are true, can't say anyone's false or whatever. Yeah, all, a, all religions lead to heaven, basically. Yes, exactly. All roads to heaven, yeah. So as a follower of Jesus Christ myself, that's not my conviction. That's not what I believe. And so I wanted to convince my friend Raj to abandon the idea that it's possible that all religions could be true. And so here's the final question I asked. I said, what would you think about a religion that teaches there's a God who is made out of physical matter that's the size of a football field. And this God hovers on the far side of the moon. So you can't see this God. And this God controls the weather on our planet. I said, would you believe that that religion is also true? And he thinks about it for a moment. And then he begins to smile and he goes, okay. He goes, I take it back. He goes, all right, not all religions are true. Only the ones that make sense. And so notice he backed away from his initial claim that he thought all religions could be true. But I want you to notice what I didn't do in that conversation. Notice I didn't tell him he was wrong. Notice I didn't tell him that religious pluralism is false. Notice I didn't uh, tell him I was a Christian or even defend any aspect of my own Christian views. Yet I was still able to persuade him to this abandon this idea that all religions could be true. And it's because I used questions Mm -hmm. to lead him down a certain line of thinking And as he answered the questions in his own mind, it was almost as if his own thoughts convinced him of the idea. And that's what I'm talking about with the power of questions. If you can learn how to harness questions, not in an illicit or manipulative or, you know, uh, a condescending way, but in a, and not like an FBI interrogator way, but more like a Columbo, right? Yeah. Graciously asking questions that are disarming. And, and just drawing the person into a conversation. And there, uh, is there a methodology to, the, to this? Is there, because you, you um, like, what is the first Columbo question? What is the second Columbo question? Like, what, is, what does that mean? Yeah, so there's two, well, there's, there's three, but the two main ones that I focus on are, um, number one is, what do you mean by that? And the second Columbo question is, how did you come to that conclusion? And what you notice about these two questions is that the first one asks basically what does a person believe? And the second question asks why they believe it. And I try to encourage people to memorize 
those words. What do you mean by that? Or how did you come to that conclusion? Now, it, honestly, it doesn't, it's not essential that you memorize it, but whatever way it's easy for you to ask it is the way you should memorize it so that it becomes part of your muscle memory. Mm-hmm. And that way, when you're in a more hostile or aggressive conversation, it'll be easier to say. So if you don't want to say, what do you mean by that? And your question is, oh, tell me more about that. Or define for me that term you just used. Any question that asks what they believe will work. And for that second question, how did you come to that conclusion? It could be, why should I believe that? Or why do you believe that? Or, mm-hmm. you know, so it doesn't, it doesn't the exact words aren't essential, but whatever you choose, try to memorize it. And that way it's easy to remember. And so, and what's yeah, a good so, example or illustration of, of kind of the classic question that you would respond by saying, what do you mean by that? And so, how did you come in, to that conclusion? Yeah. So this first question, what do you mean by that? Um, anytime anybody brings up any kind of objection, right? My first response is going to go to the, that Columbo question. So for example, they say, um, uh, the Bible isn't reliable. Now, even though, uh, you know, my, I'm, my job is, a, is an apologist, I've studied this question of the reliability of the Bible. And I could probably off the top of my head, if I wanted to in that conversation, give a 10 minute, like, you know, answer to that yeah. challenge. But I don't. My initial response is to make my job 10 times easier and simply ask the question, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by reliable? Now, think about it for a moment. You don't know what they mean by reliable. They could mean the Bible isn't a reliable source of history, or maybe they mean the Bible isn't reliable when it uh, addresses scientific matters. Maybe they mean the Bible hasn't been reliably transmitted for thousands of years, such that what we have, what the biblical authors wrote is what we have in our Bibles today. And so when I ask the question, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by reliable? They'll clarify what they have in their mind, one of those three options, or maybe something else. And then I'll better understand exactly what their view is. And that way I can respond to their actual view as opposed to a view that they don't hold. Right. Yeah. Because if I, if they, if I assume they're talking about transmission, when in reality they're talking about, well, the Bible isn't a reliable source of history. Well, then I'm going to miss, you know, I'm going to be talking like this with them. Yeah. So that's one of the benefits of asking this very simple question. What do you mean by that? It's to better understand their view so that you understand them and I'll add, so you don't misrepresent them, which is a, which is an embarrassing mistake Christians often make when they, when they um, take a person's view and instead of trying to understand it properly, they end up misrepresenting it in such a way where now their view looks more foolish or stupid. And then they attack that foolish or stupid view, not the view that the person actually holds. Yeah. And that's called a straw man fallacy or straw man error. Right. Um, so, and, and again, going back to what we were saying earlier, what we're talking here about is basic logic principles. And so it helps to avoid that in that case. Um, well, I know. And then the, the problem does rise. Well, I, I'll get to that question in a minute. But so what's a, what's a classic kind of illustration of uh, how, when you would respond, how did you come to that conclusion? Oh, so anytime. Um, okay, so in order to understand the, the, the power or the importance of asking that second question, how did you come to that conclusion? You have to first understand the concept of burden of proof. So um, 
and sorry, we have to back up a little bit here. In order to understand burden of proof, you have to understand what an argument is. So yes. an argument is simply a point of view or a claim with evidence or reasons to back it up. So if I just offer my opinion or my claim, if I say God exists, well, that's not an argument. That's just an opinion or a claim. And, and if I want to turn my opinion or claim into an argument, I have to give evidence or reasons why I think God exists. Okay. And so if I gave some evidence like the Kalam cosmological argument or whatever it might be, the design argument from biology or whatever, now I've given evidence. Now I've made an argument. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the the flip side, on the other side, it works as well. Like if they say, if a non-believer says to me, well, Alan, the Bible has been translated and retranslated so many times, you can't possibly know that what the authors wrote is what we have in our Bibles today. Now that's not an argument. That's a claim. It's an opinion. It's, perfectly legitimate for them to hold that view, but it's not an argument until they give evidence or reasons to support that claim. Mm -hmm. Then, and only then would the, would their claim turn into an argument. So also notice Beckett that an argument doesn't have to be argumentative. In fact, when my wife says to me, Hey, Alan, let's, um, let's paint the the family room blue. And I say, why? She's like, cause it'll match the artwork (laughs) and the, the carpet we have. Okay. So she just, she just made an argument. Notice she's not yelling at me. She's not, we're not bickering or fighting. So an right. argument is simply a, just a calm, like, here's my view. And here's my reasons why I think the view is true. Okay. Now, with that understanding, uh, we have to understand the next step, which is what is the burden of proof? So you've probably heard that phrase in a court setting or a legal setting, you know, so if Beckett, maybe if in I, the Johnny, Johnny Depp trial or that's yeah, right. That's, that's, right. <laughs> that's yeah. right. So if, if I accuse you Beckett of stealing my car, I'm like Beckett, man, you stole my car. All right. And you're like, you're like, Alan, dude, no way. Like your car sucks. You have a Honda CRV. Like, why would I want to steal your Honda CRV? <laughs> I said, no, 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 you stole my car. So we have to go to court. Okay. So we're in trial now. And I've made the accusation that you stole my car. Now, who's responsible for providing evidence for their view? Is it me or is it you? You. It's me because I'm the one who made the accusation. I'm the one who made the claim. It's my job to provide evidence for it. If I don't provide any evidence that you stole my car, you can remain silent and you'll be innocent. Right? You'll you'll remain innocent because... I haven't turned my claim, my accusation into an argument. It's only when I provide, you know, video footage of you going to my, you know, driveway, breaking into my garage, stealing my car, whatever. Oh, see, there's a video. Now I've made my claim into an argument. And now you're going to have to provide a defense. Oh, that was just my twin brother or whatever, you know. So that's the way the burden of proof works. Whoever makes a claim it's their job to back up their view. It's not the other person's job to have to respond right. initially until they provide evidence. So with that in mind, the, the, the problem that most Christians make in evangelism is that when they're talking to a non-Christian, the non-Christian will oftentimes make an assertion or a claim. Well, the Bible has been translated so many times you can't possibly know what it says. And so In that case, the non-Christians made a claim, but they haven't presented an argument because they haven't given evidence for it. Mm -hmm. But here's how the Christian typically responds. They say, oh, no, 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 no. That's not true. No, uh, there's actually plenty of reasons why we know the Bible is trustworthy. And then the Christian goes off trying to 
give an account for why that other person's claim is false. This is a mistake because now the Christian is taking on the sh- burdening the shoulder, sorry, shouldering the burden of proof right. when they don't need to do it. The non-Christians made the claim, let them bear the burden of proof, not you. So here's how that Columbo question comes into play. When someone makes a claim, well, the Bible's been translated and retranslated so many times, can't possibly note it, you know, whatever. They made the claim. So my now I'm going to say the question, interesting opinion. Hey, how did you come to that conclusion? <laughs> because they've made the claim, so let them back up and defend their view. It's not our job initially to respond to that. And in fact, if you go around thinking that you as a Christian have to respond to every opinion or claim, you'll never want to share your faith because it's an impossible burden to bear where you have to show why another person's opinion is false. Because if I'm a non-believer, I can make up any opinion, any wild story I want that has no basis in reality. Yeah. And now what the Christian's obligated to have to try to respond to it. It's just not fair. That's not how logic and reasoning works. If I present a claim, I need to defend it first. And that second Columbo question, which is, how did you come to that conclusion, will help you to put the burden of proof back on them, which is where the burden belongs if they're the ones who've made a claim and haven't given any evidence for it. What's kind of a general uh, response for, for someone who does ask that kind of question, like, oh, well, or, set, or, or makes that claim, oh, the Bible isn't reliable, there's you know, translations, blah, blah, blah. What, and you say, well, how did you come to that conclusion? Like, what, what is kind of a common response to that? Or do, they, do people just kind of say, I, I don't know? <laughs> well, okay, so, okay, I mean, there are, so there are actually responses to that, okay, but I'll tell you this, and again, I'm not trying to pick on non-believers and suggest they're all foolish or stupid, it's not my point, but I will tell you this, there is a large number of responses where the non-believer says, oh, well, I, um, oh gosh, I, uh, you know, I was, I, well, I just saw this, you know, thing on Facebook, and you're like, what, what did you say? Well, I just saw this post on Facebook. Like, do you believe everything you read on the internet? And what's happening is the non-believers caught off guard. And here's the reason why they're used to being able to whip up some objection, some story, some spin, some tale, throw it at the Christian's feet. And the Christian freaks out and stresses and runs around trying to figure out how to answer it. Yeah. And so they're used to being able to just throw out a claim and make the Christian shoulder the burden of proof without ever having to do it themselves. And so when they're called on it by the Christian, oftentimes a non-Christian isn't prepared because they haven't really thought through their reasoning behind it. Right. So that's not always the case, but oftentimes that's what happens. And so this, again, this is not a trick. This isn't like clever sophistry. It's just the reasonable, rational question to ask. If someone presents their opinion you ask, how did you come to that conclusion? And you know that if a Christian were to do the same thing to a, to a non-Christian and say, hey, you know what? God is real and he loves you. Well, you know what the non-believer is going to say? Prove to me that God exists. And in essence, what the non-Christian is doing is the Columbo tactic. They're saying, how did you come to the conclusion that there is even a God out there? So that, so it's normal to ask the, it's reasonable and logical to ask the question, what evidence do you have for your claim? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing, the thing that I was going to ask you earlier is, you know, we're talking about logic and rational thought, uh, which is uh, kind of a modernist idea, but we live in a postmodern world. So, I mean, as Carl Truman talks about in his book, you know, there's the second, he talks about the second world and the third world and how uh, these two worlds, they're, they're two completely different worldviews. Right. Yeah. And so what, what do you do in the, in, I mean, does this tactic, does this tactic work in the culture we live in now where we live in completely different worlds and we're talking past each other. And so you may think it's rational thought. You may think it's logical, but the other person can just say, Oh, that's just violence against me. Or like you're, you know, you, I know you're committing violence or I need a safe space. Like how does it, how does this work in the current uh, culture that we live in? Well, it, it does, there, but I'm not denying there aren't challenges to this, the two worlds that you're talking about, right? I mean, we live in a very postmodern world. It's very relativistic. So without question, yes, when we're making claims, say, about morality, for example, sexual morality, there is a tendency for many people to just say, well, that's just your truth or those are just your morals, but I have my own. Don't force your morals on me. And so some of these um, conversations could get tied up in that in that clash of two worlds that are totally different but when it comes to the question thing remember uh this is typically a tactic that's used uh in a sense of in in sort of a defensive way they're making a claim about christianity oh science has proven the bible wrong you know evolution you know has shown your view to be false or whatever so they're making a claim we're responding with a question And typically in that context, I think it works really well because they're the ones who actually believe there's something true about what they're saying. Mm -hmm. When when somebody says to me, well, the Bible has been translated and retranslated so many times, they actually believe that that's a real thing that happened in space-time history. The Bible became corrupted over time. So they're presuming a modernist view of the world when they say that. And so for you to respond, well, how did you come to that conclusion? It, it typically doesn't get wrapped up in that thing that you're talking about in, in this context. Yeah, right. But again, I'm not denying that if the conversation was totally different and you're just talking to your friend and you're saying, you know, let me tell you, like you, you've, you've done things that are wrong against God and God's going to judge you for it. And I'm sure, yeah, they're going to say, God judge wrong. Like, no, I've done anything wrong. Like, you might have your morality, but don't, don't force that on me, you know? Yeah. So now, now you're dealing with relativism and there's, there's other things to do to engage that issue. Yeah. Well, I, you mentioned science and evolution and I remember I, I've talked about this before on the show. Uh, several years ago, I went to my high school reunion and uh, it was very fun. And I, <laughs> I ran into an old, you know, an old friend, Chase, his name is Chase. Uh, I won't say his last name, but you know, I said, I, I told everyone at the reunion, the, the boys, the boys school and the girls school, we had the reunion together. And, um, and I told them all about my conversion to Christianity. I was so excited to tell, I literally told every single person that night. I think there were like 200 (laughs) people there. I was exhausted by the end of it. Yeah. And, um, but I told Chase, I told him my story and I told him that, you know, the gospel, I told him the gospel and I, you know, I said, Chase, like God is real. It's amazing. Jesus is, is this, you know, the Messiah, like this is incredible. And so what would you say to Chase? Because this is what his response was to me. And I was caught off guard because this was, you know, this, this was, I don't know, five, seven years ago. So I wasn't really 
kind of uh, prepared for this, but I told him all this stuff and I, you know, I said, God is real. And his response is Beckett. I'm a science guy. Like, I don't, I don't believe in God. I'm a science guy. So ha- tell me how you would react in that moment. So he said, uh, I'm a science guy. Is that all? Yeah. Or, or, okay. Well, he, he said, I'm a science guy. Like I, okay. I, I don't so, believe in God. I'm a science guy. Okay. So I would, so at that point I would use the Columbo tactic to get more information. So in other words, my temptation should not, or I might be tempted to be like, oh, well, you know, I don't know, whatever thing that Christians would typically do with that. I don't even know because I don't encourage it. But my f- first response would be to just simply ask him Columbo questions. Hey, what do you mean by that, that you're a science guy? Could you tell me what do you mean by that and explain to me what do you think science is such that it disqualifies, you know, God or the Bible or whatever it was? So my initial response is get more information because even now when you're telling me that Beckett, if you were to just ask me, Hey Alan, you know, my friend just said this to me, what should I do? I would say, I don't know, because I don't really understand. I would want to know better what he's saying first before I formulate a response. Because again, you could be, he's saying this and you might be thinking something else and responding in a different way. Well, okay. What if his response is, um, yeah, I only believe in what's observable and empirical evidence I, so I can I can't possibly believe in in some fairy tale you know flying spaghetti monster invisible God. Then what do you say? Right. Well, so if he's so there's different ways to go about that. If um, if he's saying, well, I only believe in what's visible, I would you could possibly show him counterexamples or examples of things that he probably believes in that aren't visible, like radio waves, gravitational forces, whatever. And the reason why my suspicion is that he knows that things like gravitational forces exist, even though he can't see them, is because he could see the effects of them in the real world. And he's and a science guy. <laughs> so right. He, he right. knows Newton's law. That's right. Right. But we don't see gravity. We can infer its existence based on things that we can't see. And I would suggest that that's the case also with evidence for God's existence, which is that we can infer God's existence based on what has been made, right? Romans 1 actually talks a lot about this, but I, I wouldn't bring up Romans 1. I'm just letting you know. And so you could yeah. point to, say, the information that we have in DNA or, you know, the design of certain, you know, of organs on, on Earth. And I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can go about it. So that could be one way you can go about it. But actually, um, I would also, if I had time, depend, again, it all depends on the context and how much time we have. But the thing about science is that science is simply a tool to help us to gain information, but it's not, or to gain knowledge, but it's not the only tool there is. There are multiple tools that we have available as humans that helps us to gain information about the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. And science is just one of them. And it's only one that is, by the way, not the fastest tool, not the most accurate and can't get us information about everything. Science typically is a tool that helps us to figure out things about the natural realm. But suppose, but suppose you wanted to know, for example, like what's the weather like right now in Chicago? Well, I have a lot of relatives in Chicago, so I could just call them up and ask them to testify. Oh yeah, it's raining right now in Chicago. So notice witness or witness testimony is another tool another epistemological tool and epistemological means uh, a reference to epistemology yeah Yeah. how do we know things well science is one way we can know things but asking someone to testify is another way okay um 
logical reasoning is another tool. So for example, if I told you Beckett, um, I'm taller than my wife and my wife is taller than my daughter. Am I taller than my daughter? Well, the answer is yes. And you know that not by science and not by testimony, but by logical reasoning and inference. Mm -hmm. So logic and reasoning is another way to learn things. What about if we wanted to know something about your internal states? Like, are you currently angry? Mm -hmm. Are you currently, you know, stressed out? Well, science can't tell us that. Uh, Logical inference can't tell us that. But what can? Introspection. So when we introspect in ourselves, this can tell us information about our internal states. And no, and science can't do that, right? Uh, Historical investigation is another tool. And so there are many, many tools that can help us to get information about the world. And uh, sometimes science can't get us that information depending on what kind of information we're trying to get. So it's just one tool, but not the only tool. But typically the person who says this to me is operating on this premise that science is somehow the chief tool, the most incredible tool, right? But as we know, science is a slow process. It can be mistaken and it's limited in terms of its scope. So I would, you know, if I had the time, I probably would unpack some of these principles with them as well to show that the only, you know, science isn't the only way we know things. Yeah. And, uh, Theology used to be called the queen of the sciences at Harvard and Yale and other, you know, institutions like that back, uh, (laughs) back in the day. But what do you think? Because I I think I mentioned this in one of our Q&As, and I I really love this. Uh, J.P. Moreland, we both sat under him uh, at Talbot School of Theology. Um, But I loved what he said about one of the one of the evidences of, of the veracity of Christianity is is uh, he says, you know, if you line up 100 born again Christians, which there, there's there's no such thing as a non born again Christian, so right, I, it's, right, right. it's it's a uh, redundant to redundant, say born yeah. again Christian. But if you line up 100 born again Christians and you ask each person, tell me your story, like what happened, those stories are going to have different details, but the the general idea is going to be the same. It's going to be I was lost and now I'm found. I was, you know, a mess. And now I have like this, I, I have this peace and joy. Uh, I was blind. Now I see, I mean, it's like, and he calls, he calls that empirical evidence. I mean, what do you, what do you think of that argument? Uh, you mean that, that a person's testimony provides evidence? Yeah. That, that, well, that, that, that Christians, born again, Christians in, in, in kind of a, not just a single testimony, but when you, when oh, you take, I see that when you survey, that. yeah, when you survey like a hundred Christians and you, you, that's empirical evidence. That's one way um, of knowing. Sure. Uh, well, I think, well, it is a way of knowing we are learning something about the nature of testimonies pertaining to people who've been converted to follow after God. So um, I don't deny that that would be some form of evidence. It just may not be compelling evidence to every person. Right. You know, I wouldn't even say actually that you need a hundred people. Like in some cases, just one person sharing their testimony, like you Beckett, like uh, I've, I've seen people who hear your story and are incredibly moved by it. You know, the transformation of a person who, like you say, you were lost, but now you're found. And that whole story and the transformation that occurred in your life 
is compelling evidence, even on its own, even if you didn't have another 99 Beckett cooks out there. So I think it can be powerful and valid and legitimate. And I won't, I, I always encourage people to share their testimony, but I just want to be cautious also to recognize that um, it's not going to always be persuasive to everybody. And sometimes people can just simply say, well, but the Mormons have incredible right. conversion stories or, yeah, too. So, yeah. you know, um, that Buddhists have testimonies. Yeah. Yeah. Why can't we say that the Mormon testimony is legitimate as evidence for the truth of Mormonism? Mm-hmm. So again, I'm not trying to discount it because I do believe that a changed life is, is legitimate. It's valid. It's evidence, but we just have to see its place and, and, and understand how it could not be persuasive in some people's cases. Yeah. And what is, what is the professor's ploy? What does that mean? Oh, okay. So that's, so we got that name from the fact that this is often a situation that happens in a university setting. So there might be, and this happened to me, by the way, when I was in at, at Cal State University in Long Beach, I was in a, a class on, I think, Western history. I can't remember exactly. But um, oftentimes the professor, who's not a Christian, is lecturing about some topic. And then all of a sudden they stop and they tangent and they start attacking Christianity or attacking Christians <laughs> or attacking the Bible, like out of nowhere. Yeah. You know, uh, the Bible's full of fables and myths. And oftentimes there might be a, a Christian in the room who raises his hand and says, professor, um, you just made this claim that the Bible's full of fables and myths. Can you give us some evidence or reasons for why you think that's the case? So now notice what the student's doing. They are using the Columbo question. The second one, how did you come to that conclusion? Uh, because after all, the professor made a claim, but without any evidence. So now the student's just asking that professor to bear the burden of proof. Now, here's what often happens because the professor is very smart. They've had lots of Christians come and go through their lecture hall for, for decades now. And so here's how he handles this question from the, from the Christian student. He says, young man, thank you for, for raising this question. I appreciate it. Hey, I want you to know I'm an open-minded kind of guy. I'm not here to impose necessarily everything that I believe on every one of you. Uh, I'm willing to consider other people's beliefs. So young man, feel free right now to go ahead and share with us why you believe the Bible is trustworthy and true. Now, notice what's happened, right? The professor made a claim. The student simply asked the professor to shoulder the burden of proof by providing evidence and reasons for their claim. But instead of doing that, the professor turns it back on the student and makes him now all of a sudden shoulder the burden of proof. And so if you're in that kind of a situation, you don't want to take the bait, right? You want to say, well, wait a minute, professor. Um, I didn't say anything about my views. You're the one who made the claim. It's your job to back up what you said, unless you think we should all just take what you say on faith. No, don't say that. But I mean, <laughs> uh, but, but that's the thing. And so this situation, even though I'm using an illustration of a university professor it happens in everyday one-on-one conversations too you know you're at easter dinner with your family and uncle bob's there and uncle bob's like you know um, all religions are basically the same and you're like well uncle bob um how did you come to that conclusion and uncle bob says well you think christianity is the only true religion prove it and so notice what's happened same thing uncle bob made a claim you ask What is the evidence for your claim? And instead of answering it, he puts the burden of proof back on the Christian and says, 
will prove to me that you know Christianity is the only true religion. When that poor aunt didn't, or I'm sorry, uh, niece or nephew didn't say anything. They're just asking Bob to, you know, back it up. So that's what the professor's ploy is. When the burden of proof is reversed back on you, when you're the one who never made the claim. Yeah. My friend, I had a friend who at USC, she um, just, again, it was like a professor just going off on a tangent and he just said, Oh, uh, we obviously know that the Bible's a fable. And she was, she's a Christian and she kind of was like, um, I don't think so. (laughs) I forgot what her response was, but that's very common, you know, for professors to uh, just make these wild claims, you know, without any evidence. Um, And so what is, what is, this sounds like a scorched earth tactic, but what is taking the roof off tactic? Oh, okay. Well, so that, that phrase comes from Francis Schaeffer. Um, and uh, so taking the roof off is just another, it's, it's a common lingo um, phrase for the tactic known as reductio ad absurdum, which is just a Latin phrase that means reduce to the absurd. Yeah. And so what this tactic does is it takes advantage of the fact that some people's views, some, some positions uh, lead logically to an absurdity. And if you can demonstrate that a person's view leads to some absurd conclusion, then that can show then that their view is, is ridiculous or mistaken. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, 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 the three steps in this particular tactic, number one is this. When you hear a person express their view and you think there's something wrong with it, the first step is just adopt the other person's view just for the sake of argument. And and we do that all the time, right? We will often say, okay, let's just, let's just say that what you're saying is true, right? We've all probably done that at some point. So that's step one. So you adopt their argument for just the sake of argument. And then the second step is you take that argument or that view and follow it to its logical conclusion. Ask the question, if this is true, what logically follows? So you're kind of taking that view for a test drive, if you will, to see what it's like. And if it leads to some absurdity, well, then you can show that then, of course, the view itself must be faulty. Yeah. So the third step in the view in the tactic is to ask a question. Again, using the combo tactic, right? You ask a question that graciously demonstrates the absurdity of the view. Right now, I I would say, Beckett, that you already know this tactic and virtually everyone listening already knows this tactic. And let me I can prove it to you right here. Imagine a hypothetical conversation between a father and his daughter. And let's just say the daughter has picked up smoking. okay? and so the father comes to his daughter, says, honey, come on. Why did you start smoking? And she says, well, because all my friends were doing it. Now, what's what's the father going to say in response? What's the common thing that we all, you know, everybody jokes about? Do you, are you going to jump off of a cliff just because all your friends do it? Exactly. Are you jump off? Okay, yeah, right. So that is taking the roof off. Notice what the father's done. First, he adopts her view. And her view is, I'm going to do what my friends do. So now he takes that view for a test drive. Well, what, what would that lead to? <laughs> well, that would mean that if her friends jumped off a cliff, she would jump <laughs> off a cliff. That's absurd. That's right. And so is the reasoning that led to the absurdity. And so he asks a question that exposes how her view leads to an absurdity. Do you have a, a, a kind of an illustration in, in a theological 
conversation that where you, you know, that you've experienced or where you've had used this tactic? Yeah. 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 So people say, um, I mean, it's a whole bunch of examples. People say, well, I, I can't believe in a book like the Bible that's written by men. <laughs> I'll say, okay. So I'll say, well, okay. So no, notice what the view is. Well, if it's written by men, I can't believe it. All right. Well, do you believe in the DMV manual? Like, do you accept your math book? Like, these are all things that are written by, you know, human constitution. beings. Yeah. The con- yeah. The constitution. Well, of course they don't believe in that. Right? Yeah. So that's um, one of the, one of the things that people often used to say, not so much anymore, but especially people who identify as gay, they'll say, well, I just feel like I was born that way. So therefore it must be okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's their view? The view is if you're born with a certain predisposition, then it's morally okay to act on it. I'm sure we could think of a whole bunch of things that we are born with and predisposed to do. Like um, I'm, I was born with a tendency to lie to get myself out of trouble. Right. Does that mean that's right? No, of course not. That's absurd. That's right. And so is the reasoning that Mm -hmm. just because I'm born a certain way, you know, Rosie O'Donnell, I don't know if you know, but so Rosie O'Donnell's a lesbian and uh, many years ago, (laughs) What's that? <laughs> yes, I know that. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, for the other people, it's not. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so she said she was defending homosexuality. She said something like, we see animals engage in homosexual behavior, so right. therefore it should be morally okay. And so, again, think about it. What's her case? What's her view? Her view is, if animals engage in a behavior, then it should be morally appropriate. Well, let's take that view for a test drive. Um, Animals sometimes eat their own young, <laughs> right? Uh, do we think that's morally appropriate? No, that's absurd. That's right. So it's a view. So, you know, there's so, so many. By the views. way, so do humans at this point. Yeah. So humans eat their own young too. Oh, you mean like stem cell research and well, like in terms aborted, of aborted babies yeah. and stuff? Yeah. Oh, okay. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's, yes. Wow. Oh, yeah. That's, didn't know you were going to go there, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. So it's not right though. Yeah, exactly. It's not right. And, um, what, so what, what, so if I, okay, you know, my story, you've heard it a million times at these conferences. Um, so if I, if you happen to, to have been at the coffee shop in Silver Lake where, you know, I first ran into Christians before I was a Christian and I said to you, you know, Let's let's just pretend. Okay, just say, answer these questions. So I ask you, you you tell me you're a Christian, and I say, okay. So, do you believe homosexual behavior is a sin? What would you say? Well, if if I'm, I mean, just to give a quick answer, or or the way that I'd enc- teach Christians to respond to such a question. Oh, the the way you would encourage Christians to respond. Well, I would. So I like to um, what I call let Jesus take the heat. And so if someone asks me that, I think if I just simply answer, yes, I think, uh, how did you phrase it? Homosexual sex or, homosexual yeah, yeah, you, yeah, uh, you know, do you, do you believe, well, let's just say I would say homosexual. Cause I, I you, you don't separate when you're gay, you don't separate the behavior from right, the identity. So let's just say, um, do you believe that being gay is wrong? Okay. Yeah. Do I believe being gay is wrong? So if, if I was to just simply say, yes, um, what's going to happen is you the conversation or, or, shuts down, right? Conversation shuts down. People are like, Oh, you know, they're, and they're angry at you. Okay. So I like to employ a tactic, uh, that I've written about called letting Jesus take the heat. 
And, uh, it, and by the way, it's not that I'm afraid of having people upset with me. I, I can, I'm okay with that. And I'm not going to always please everybody, but for a lot of people, they're nervous about answering that question. So if you were to ask a person, a question, a Christian, that question, and they knew you're, they knew you identified as gay, they might be nervous about answering it because they think your anger is going to be directed at them. Right. So here's what we know is culturally a thing kind of, and that is that people, non-Christians tend to say, we don't like Christians. We don't like the church but we do like Jesus. Like he's mm-hmm. kind of a loving, compassionate, tolerant kind of guy. And so my, this tactic, letting Jesus take the heat takes advantage of that reality. And here's what I do. If I, when you, if you were to ask me that, I'd say, you know, Beckett, thanks for asking me that question. You know, um, in Matthew 19 verses four through six, Jesus says, and so then I'd quote what Jesus says. And in that verse, it's where Jesus says, uh, have you not, have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother, and his father, be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So it's that whole verse where Jesus is quoting Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two about how God made humans male and female and said for them to come together. Right. Yeah. Um, and he's so reaffirming would, the, the, he's reaffirming what marriage is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What, what sex and marriage is. What sex and marriage is. So I would say, thanks for asking me, Beckett. You know, in Matthew 19, Jesus says this, and I'd quote it. And I'd say, so on Jesus's view, when it comes to sex or marriage, it's about one man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. And then I, this is the key point. And then I add this, I say, and since I'm a disciple of Jesus, since I'm a follower of Jesus, I have to adopt his views about sex and marriage. Okay. I don't have the freedom to make up my own views about sexuality or morality. It's Jesus views. He's the creator. He's the one who invented them. So in other words, what I'm saying to the person is if you, here's the view, but the only reason I hold the view is because Jesus is holding the view. He's the one who created the view. He's the author of the view. I'm just his disciple. I just got to follow him. So if you had a problem with it, you had to kind of take it up with Christ in a sense. <laughs> and so the yeah. anger normally coming at you, you're just kind of doing like a little sidestep and letting it go and hit Jesus, you know, and yeah. Christ is of course, okay with that. Because in reality, that is the reality. He, we don't hold the view that homosexual sex is sin because we invented that idea. It's because Jesus taught that he's the creator. So he's at fault or he's responsible for that position. Yeah. So that's how I typically respond is I always let Jesus take the heat. I point to him because again, people are like, Oh, I kind of like Jesus. Okay. Well, guess what? According to Jesus in that passage, what he says disqualifies homosexual sex alone. Even if you never went to any of the passages in the Bible that addressed homosexual sex more properly. Or yeah. directly, I mean. Yeah, I like that idea of Jesus taking the heat because <laughs> he can take it. And it's a, it's a great, when you first mentioned that uh, during the Stand to Reason stuff, I, I had never really thought of that. And it's a great way to deflect. It's like deflecting. It's like, no, I didn't, I didn't make this up. I didn't make yeah. these, these prescriptions up. Um, but you're answering the, the, you're still answering the question. It's not you're devoiding the question. You're answering yeah. the question, but you're giving appropriate credit. And by the way, you can do this with any, any, uh, well, not any, but lots of questions. Like when people get upset, if you say that Christianity is the only true religion or Jesus is the only way, 
what I do is I say, well, I just let Jesus take the heat. I say, well, actually, you know, it's Jesus who said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Yeah. So it, so it's Jesus who said, it. I'm just his disciple. I'm just repeating what he said, you know? So again, I'm letting Jesus take the heat, you know? Yeah. And so, and just a, kind of the last to, to close, I'm just going <clears> to <throat> ask you, 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 you make a couple of points. Um, and I just want to ask you kind of to clarify them. You say that the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in battle. What does that mean? Oh, so I live, uh, I live in San Diego where there's a whole bunch of military bases. So, and my wife and I have hosted a bunch of, you know, a small group in our home for like 20 years now. And we've had many military guys and gals in our group. And so they have this saying, the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in battle, which means the more you practice in a safe environment with like your own team, if you will, like, you know, in the military with your own, with your own uh, soldiers, the, the less likely you are to get shot or bleed and get injured in a real battlefield. And the point is this with these tactics, like the Colombo tactic, practice them, like make them a part of your everyday conversation. So even when I'm talking to my kids or to my friends, I always say, well, hey, what do you mean by that? Okay. So, so how did you come to that conclusion? Like, and it's not meant to be a nasty question. It's just an inquisitive, Hey, I love you. And I care about what you believe kind of question. Yeah. So the more you make that into muscle memory, the easier it is to then say it in a more hostile situation. Yeah. And then what do you feel? What, what do you mean by don't feel pressure to get to the gospel in every conversation? Oh yeah. So I think um, evangelicals have this tendency to feel pressured that if they're talking to a non-Christian, if they don't share the gospel in that conversation, no matter what they're talking about, like they're a failure, you know? And so what ends up happening is they try to shoehorn the gospel in a conversation where it doesn't belong. You know, it's like you're talking to your buddy and you notice he bought a new truck and you're like, Hey man, I noticed you got a new truck. And he's like, yeah, man, you like it. And you're like, yeah, I love it. I noticed you bought a Toyota and not a, a Ford. Like, why did you do that? And they're like, well, you know, because, uh, Toyotas have a better resale value. And, you know, so that's why I chose to buy a Toyota. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I see. I can see how you made that decision. Well, since you uh, chose to buy a Toyota, why don't you also choose to follow Jesus Christ? And they're like, <laughs> whoa, like, where did that come from? Like, that's funny. You know, we're like trying to pull the gospel into anything and it just comes across as awkward and weird. And so my suggestion is like, look, and by the way, don't, don't mistake what I'm saying here. I'm not saying don't share the gospel if the opportunity arises. Of course, by all means, that's the most important thing. My point is, is don't feel compelled to always present the gospel no matter what. And instead, make a more modest goal. And the more modest goal is make your goal to put a stone in their shoe. Yeah. Like, you know, when you what get you a stone in your that? shoe, you, like every time you step, you, that stone is poking you in the sole of your foot. Yeah. So the same way, use the Columbo tactic to ask them questions graciously to, you know, and, you know, find out about what's going on deep inside their soul so that you can, you know, put a stone in their shoe, a stone in their mind, if you will, in their soul. And that way, the Holy Spirit can use that to, you know, perhaps persuade them of this idea you're talking about or convict them of sin or whatever it might be. Yeah. Is that what you mean by God has not called you to be successful, but to be faithful? Yeah, that's that's a quote from Mother Teresa from her book, um, uh, Love is a Fruit Always in Season. And um, 
I mean, I'm not Catholic, but I, I really like this point. In other words, it's not our job. I mean, this is, this is my theology. Maybe some people have a different theology about the nature of salvation, but I would say it's not our job as Christians to convince people of our arguments or to make them into Christians, right? That's mm-hmm. God's job. Yeah. It's our job simply to be faithful as an ambassador for Jesus to proclaim the message of reconciliation, to present the gospel in as clear and as persuasive as we can. And then we leave the results up to God. So we're not committed to that, to that end result. We're only committed to our part of the bargain, if you will. And, uh, and that's to be faithful, to present the truth, put a stone in their shoe, present the gospel, whatever it is, and then leave the results up to God and the Holy Spirit to do the work of, of changing people. Amen. That, yeah. Amen. We'll leave it there. Now, where yeah. can people go to get more resources on these tactics? Well, the definitive source would be my boss's book, uh, Greg Kokel's his name, Gregory Kokel, and it's called Tactics and Defending the Faith. Here, here it is. Like. And that's uh, the 10th anniversary edition. So yeah, uh, the, the 10th, 10th an- this just came out, right? The 10th anniversary one. Uh, yeah, like a year or two ago. It's so, okay. But, but there are a few probably others that are floating around that don't have the 10th anniversary edition, but this one has like 40% more content than the original edition. So definitely get the 10th anniversary edition. Um, but this is the best place. And then of course our website, str.org. Um, there are literally thousands of articles, podcasts, YouTube videos, social media posts, all free, all geared towards equipping believers to be able to persuasively and graciously share their convictions. And so we incorporate a lot of the tactics in everything that we do and write. Nice. Yeah. I recommend going to str.org. It's uh, you guys are a solid, solid organization. And so Alan Schliemann, thank you for being on the show. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll have you back soon on something uh, something else, but thank you for, for coming on today. Yeah, let's do it again. Absolutely. All right. I'll see you guys next week on the Becca Cook Show. And uh, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of the Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. I'm Dr. Lauren DeVille, a practicing naturopathic physician in Tucson, Arizona. In my podcast, Christian Natural Health, my guests and I discuss topics ranging from nutrition, sleep, hormone balancing, and exercise to specific health concerns like hair loss, anxiety, and hypothyroidism. I'll also interweave biblical principles as they apply throughout the podcast because true health is body, mind, and spirit. Listen to Christian Natural Health for free at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcast platform.